bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik. This is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 19th, 2013. I'll begin this week's podcast with an update from Washington, D.C., where tax reform dominated the scene yet again last week. In this week's historic tax credit section, I'll discuss legislation that would make permanent some enhanced tax incentives for conservation easements. These incentives are scheduled to expire at the end of this year. I will also view a report published by the Office of the Chief Financial Officer of the District of Columbia that analyzed how a state historic rehabilitation tax credit program affects the leveraging of resources through the federal credit. And finally, I have a state-level update from Ohio, where $30 million in tax credit allocation is available for applicants in the current Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit Application Round. And then in our low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss last week's hearing where Financial Accounting Standards Board's Emerging Issues Tax Force, or the FASB EITF, considered how entities should account for limited partnership investments in low-income housing tax credit projects. I'll also review the American Bar Association's Section on Taxation Suggestions for Tax Reform in Real Estate. These suggestions included a number of comments in a number of areas, including the low-income housing tax credit and the historic tax credit. So, if you're ready, let's get started. As I said in the intro, last week was a big week for tax reform. Last week, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp released a discussion draft aimed at reforming the tax code for small businesses. Chairman Camp says that the goal of this latest draft is to spur job creation and higher wages for workers by reducing the burden the tax code imposes on small businesses. As part of the broader comprehensive tax reform package that lowers tax rates for individuals, small businesses, and corporations, the discussion draft reforms and simplifies a number of tax rules affecting small businesses and workers. The draft contains a few core components, such as permanent Section 179 expensing and expansion of the cash accounting method. The discussion draft also includes two separate options designed to achieve greater uniformity between S-corporations as pass-throughs and partnerships. Now, one option would revise current rules. A second option would replace current tax rules with a new unified pass-through regime. The committee is soliciting comments from stakeholders on both options. I will note, for the code heads listening, for purposes of allocations of partnerships, Section 704 Four would be replaced by a new Section 712, and all credits in a partnership would need to be allocated in the same percentage, which might cause some bit of a challenge, depending on how the rules are interpreted, for transactions that have both federal credits and state credits and are attempting to allocate them to different partners. Now, an overview of the discussion draft, along with a detailed summary, can be found online at www.novaco.com. Click on the Hot Topics button 
and follow the tax reform link. Now, in related news, Representative Pat Tiberi, chairman of the Subcommittee on Select Revenue Measures, last week announced that this, his subcommittee will hold a hearing on the financial products tax reform discussion draft that was released back in January. The committee released the discussion draft to solicit feedback on the details of the draft proposals, which the committee intends to include as part of comprehensive tax reform legislation. That hearing will take place tomorrow, March 20th. Likewise, Chairman Camp last week announced that the committee will hold a hearing on federal tax provisions that affect state and local governments as part of the committee's work on comprehensive tax reform as well. This hearing is going to examine the array of federal tax provisions that affect state and local government operations and financing. This hearing is scheduled to take place today, March 19th. Also today, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs is scheduled a hearing called Bipartisan Solutions for Housing Finance Reform. The witnesses will include former HUD Secretary Mel Martinez, who is a co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Housing Commission. And then finally, the House Financial Services Committee is slated to hold a hearing today entitled Sustainable Housing Finance, an update from the Federal Housing Finance Agency on the GSE conservatorship. And staying with the Senate for a moment, last week, the Senate Finance Committee announced that it's going to begin holding weekly meetings on various tax reform topics. There's an estimate that there'll be about 10 weekly meetings, and these are going to be private internal meetings that will not be open to the public. But it is a demonstration that the Senate Finance Committee is moving down the path of tax reform, just as the Ways and Means Committee is having these various hearings, as well as the Ways and Means Committee having continued to have the meetings with their working groups. And to that end, I would remind our listeners to submit comments to the Ways and Means website. And some comments that others have submitted are already available. However, when I checked earlier today, there weren't any comments dealing specifically with the loan housing tax credit, historic tax credit, new market tax credit, or renewable energy tax credits. And in closing this section, I note that some key upcoming dates are March 27th. First, it's the next full moon, but more significantly, that's when the current continuing resolution expires. April 8th is when we expect to see the President's fiscal year 2014 budget. April 15th is the deadline for House and the Senate to pass budget resolutions. And May 19th is when the debt ceiling suspension is targeted to end, which means we have until July, middle of July to late July, before the debt ceiling limit would really kick in and affect government spending. In historic tax credit news, last week, Senators Max Baucus and Orrin Hatch, and they represent the chairman of the Tax Writing Senate Finance Committee and the ranking Republican member of the Senate Finance Committee, they announced legislation that would make permanent some enhanced tax incentives for donations of conservation easements. These enhanced tax incentives are scheduled to expire at the end of this year. As listeners may know, conservation easements are often used in connection with historic preservation projects. The bill is entitled the Rural Heritage Conservation Act of 2013, and it's numbered Senate Bill 526. It would give taxpayers the ability to deduct a conservation easement up to 50% of their AGI. Right now, the limit on the ability to take such a charitable contribution is 30% of your AGI or I should say it would be 30% 
if this temporary provision is allowed to expire. The deduction limit for farmers and ranchers, however, would be up to 100% of AGI. So if you made a charitable contribution, you could deduct up to 100% of your AGI in a given year. The bill would also allow unused deductions to be carried forward for up to 15 years. Senator Baucus originally introduced the provision with Senator Chuck Grassley back in 2006. It has then been extended three times. In the Food Conservation and Energy Act of 2008, in the Taxpayer Relief, Unemployment Reauthorization, and Job Creation Act of 2010, and then again in the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012. And as I mentioned, this provision is currently set to expire at the end of this year. You can find a copy of the bill at www.historictaxcredits.com. Now let's turn to the District of Columbia. A report published by the Office of the Chief Financial Officer of the District of Columbia analyzed how a state historical provision tax credit can help leverage resources namely by bringing and attracting historic tax credits. The report found that states offering their own state historic tax credit program generally leverage between $15 million and $35 million more in federal resources, that is, than those that don't have such a credit. Researchers also examined what program design elements are most important in successfully leveraging federal credits with state credits. The report found that the percent of certified expenditures that's allowed as a subsidy provided the largest and most consistent correlation with increased historic tax credit expenditures. A 10% increase in the credit percentage accounts for additional expenditures of between $34 million and $78 million, according to the study. Other program design factors that are likely to influence a program's leveraging success include the ease with which a developer can monetize credits by claiming them or transferring them, certain geographic limitations, use restrictions, and per-project caps. You can find a copy of the report at www.dc.gov. Now let's turn to the state of Ohio. The application period for Round 10 of the Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program is now open. The Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program provides a 25% tax credit, that's right, 25% for rehabilitation costs, and it's allowed to owners and lessees of historically significant buildings. The program is competitive, and it receives applications biannually in March and September. A total of $30 million in tax credit allocation is available for around 10 applicants. Over the nine funding rounds to date, tax credits have been approved for 157 projects to rehabilitate 229 historic buildings in 34 different communities. Now, it should be noted that all applicants are required to schedule pre-application meetings with both the Ohio Development Services Agency and the Ohio Historic Preservation Office. That is, before they can submit an application. Applications for round 10 must be received by the Office of Redevelopment by 5 p.m. on April 2nd. It's anticipated that approved applications will be announced on or before June 30th. And if you would like assistance with such an application or have other questions about the Historic Tax Credit Program, I encourage you to contact Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In low-income housing tax credit news, at a meeting last week, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, 
Their Emerging Issues Task Force, or the EITF, considered how entities should account for limited partnership investments in low-income housing tax credit projects. By a majority vote, the group agreed to expose for comment a change that would allow effective yield accounting for low-income housing tax credit investments, even if a guarantee is not provided, as long as certain criteria are met. This move is a most welcome development because allowing the expanded use of effective yield accounting will likely expand, maybe dramatically, the pool of potential long-term housing tax credited investors. The key is to get the geography right, to get the deduction to be in the same area of the income statement as the tax credit benefit. And the effective yield allows the benefit to be in the tax credit provision and allows the deduction to be below the line also in the tax credit provision. At its meeting last week, to give you a little more detail, the group agreed to move ahead with a proposal that would allow an entity to elect to account for a long housing tax credit investment using the effective yield method if certain conditions are met. If you want to learn more about those conditions, I invite you to go to my blog on wordpress.com. Next, the EITF staff is going to create and publish an exposure draft for public comment. Based on discussion at the meeting, this draft will center on the effective yield method. The EITF staff may also, though, prepare examples comparing the effective yield method of recovering your investment in a tax credit partnership with the straight line method of expensing or recovering the investment balance. Now, after public comments gathered, the EITF will likely hold another meeting to discuss that feedback and to consider additional modification to the proposal. In the best case scenario, the earliest the long housing tax credit industry might expect a final rule is this fall. If you're interested in joining the group of industry stakeholders who are working on this accounting change, I'd encourage you to contact Ron Diner. He's the executive director at Raymond James Tax Credit Funds, and he is the leader of the group. And as I mentioned, you can read more about the meeting on my blog at novagradic.wordpress.com. Links to related materials and background information can be found online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button and then the Tax Credit Accounting link. Next, let's talk about the ABA, the American Bar Association, and turning to a topic that I mentioned in last week's podcast. The American Bar Association section on taxation, not the affordable housing and community development section, but the section on taxation on March 11th, sent Congress suggestions for tax reform as they relate to real estate. The suggestions are contained in a 47-page document, and they argue that their suggestions would simplify the tax code and make it easier to administer. Several of the suggestions relate to the low-income housing tax credit program as well as the historic tax credit program. First, I'd like to discuss the group's five suggested changes for the low-income housing tax credit. First, they suggest setting the applicable percentages for the 30% and 70% present value credits at 9% and 4% respectively. Second, they suggest shortening the compliance period, the period for which recapture is determined from 15 years to 10 years. And then they would similarly extend the extended use period from 15 to 20, so one's overall commitment to affordable housing is still 30 years. Now, when score, this would certainly score as some sort of uh, additional tax cost over some period of time, and it remains to be seen if that's a worthy goal or a worthy objective given the other factors to be addressed. Now, the next 
suggestion contained multiple building projects, is specifically how you meet the set-aside test for a 2050 or 4060 project. And they have some simplification ideas there. The next suggestion, number four, deals with mixed-income site low-income housing tax credit developments. And it basically says that if you are doing a scattered site project, you do not have to be 100% affordable and rent-restricted. And then finally, number five, deals with casualty losses. And they specifically say they want Congress to adopt a rule that says you have six months from discovery of the loss or incurrence of the loss to fix the replacement property or to replace the property, otherwise reconstruct it. I actually think six months is probably too short a period of time to be locked in stone. I also think that it looks like they missed the point that you don't want to just avoid recapture. You also want to be able to continue to claim the credits. So if you're going to make a suggestion about casualty losses, you want to make sure you're talking about continuing to claim the credits as well, which, as many of you know, the Novograd Longham Housing Tax Credit Working Group has made such a suggestion. Now let's turn to the historic tax credit program and the comments the ABA made there. First, it suggested codifying the Ninth Circuit's Circuit Court's position in Sachs v. Com so that it could be used as precedent in transactions. That would be a good thing. It also has some changes to how the historic tax credit could be used and measured in condo developments. And then lastly, it looks at Section 50D, or formerly Section 50D, and suggests that some of the language on master leases and pass-through structures that's no longer technically in the code, that actually be incorporated into the code, and some other minor modifications are made. Now, the document contains over 30 tax reform suggestions. Some of the others relate to passive activity, losses and credits, as well as other items that I think you'd find of interest. I'd encourage you to go online and review all 30 suggestions. Now, the ABA section of taxation notes in its letter that the suggestions are from the taxation section, not the ABA. So this should not be construed as representing the American Bar Association's position on any of the issues. If you would like to follow up my suggestion and read the document, you can find it on the Affordable Housing Resource Center website. Simply go to www.taxcredithousing.com. If you'd like to share your comments on these suggestions, send me an email to cpas at novoco.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And if you have any suggestions for topics, shoot an email to cpas at novoco.com, and we'll try to cover it in next week or the week after's podcast. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.